welcome to The Thought Experiment. I'm Scott Berger, and I'm here to guide you through a series of hypothetical journeys through physics, mathematics, and philosophy. Unfortunately, my co-host Andrew couldn't make it with us this week, but he'll join us uh, next week in discussion of further thought experiments down the road as well, so no worries on that front. Energy, as we know, is a very pertinent issue facing the United States. We have a lot of congressional action working towards climate change, green businesses coming up now, lots of environmentally aware projects that are abounding in the United States. With this, there's also lots of ideas for future ideas for energy and how to control it, harness it, and store it. Anything from solar energy to wind energy to different ways of, uh, of engineering uh, nuclear energy as well. There's something called uh, Gen 4 nuclear reactors, which use almost no radiation that's put out into the environment in terms of you know, radioactive glowing goo or what have you. You know, it's it it's stored in these uh, graphite layers, but that is an, is another story because that's also radioactive in and of itself. Anyway, the point is is that there's various projects around to work in a more fuel efficient manner. Electric cars, for example, hybrid cars versus the internal combustion engine or steam engines, for example. All of these are built up from the predecessors of less inefficient designs, moving more towards more efficient more sustainable, green, quote-unquote, energy designs. So what happens if we try to use a machine with 100% efficiency? So now we enter this week's thought experiment, also known as Mach's machine. Ernst Mach was a Austrian physicist and philosopher, and to which we named the Mach number after him. And he's also famous for the optical illusion as known as uh, mock bands that you can type into a Google image search and be amazed at for a little while. But he's not the one that actually pioneered this experiment. So technically, this podcast should have gone out way earlier, even before Newton, in terms of us going through the history of thought experiments. Now, the reason we call it Mach's machine is, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. But the actual credit goes to a man named Simon Steven, a 17th century Flemish mathematician, to which Mach had reevaluated such claim in his Science of Mathematics. So what is the thought experiment exactly? Let's jump right into it. Imagine if you have a chain that's draped over an angled bracket that is frictionless. So it's kind of hard to describe. There's a, there's a beautiful picture that I will put up, post up on the blog that explains it almost perfectly. It's almost like the top end of a triangle except one end is a little bit longer and the other end is a little bit shorter with a little bit of a steeper angle. Now imagine this with a chain draped over it, obviously, but with zero friction. So what would happen if we let the chain go? Well, obviously the amount of chain that's on the longer side is going to pull down on the shorter side and it's just going to slip off the frictionless plane. It's pretty obvious. But what happens if we have a loop of chain as opposed to just a line of it? Well, given that there's more mass on one side, and again, the plane is frictionless, it would have to continue to rotate, defying not only gravity, but instinctive knowledge, quote-unquote. Stanford's website on thought experiments says this about Mach's empiricism, to which he was famous for. They say, quote, We possess, he says, a great store of 
what's called instinctive knowledge, picked up from experience. Some of this is from actual experiences, and some we have inherited through the evolutionary process, thanks to the experience of our ancestors. This knowledge needn't be articulated at all, but comes to the foray when we encounter certain situations, this being one of them. So what does that mean? It's a lot of big words and long-winded. How could I sum that up into a single sentence that pretty much gets the point across? Well, Mach says that it's basic human knowledge from experience that perpetual motion cannot exist. So what exactly is perpetual motion? Well, let's break it down into, into its constituents. Perpetual means forever, or self-perpetuating. Motion means obviously moving. So something that is forever moving, or free energy, since it requires work to move stuff. Since we know it requires work to move stuff, for example, my mouse on my mouse pad won't move by itself. It requires me to move it. So what moves my hand? Well, my muscles move my hand. But how do my muscles move? Well, my muscles move from the chemical energy in carbohydrate form or sugars or what have you that's built up for me ingesting food. So we have this process that goes back further and further to which we can eventually draw all of the power that we get from the earth from the sun. We'll get into that far later in the program. So we know that it takes work to move stuff, but why can't we have a perfectly efficient machine? This is a, a big question that's always brought up that, you know, in a time where we have people seeking alternative means of energy, we want the most efficient stuff possible. So why can't we have something that's 100%? Well, let's define efficiency first. If you put a gallon of gas in your car and you get so many miles out of it, that pretty much determines the fuel efficiency of your car. Likewise, if you were to put any certain amount of work into something and you get a certain amount of it back in terms of some other different product, you're pretty much putting the same amount of energy into it. That energy is indeed conserved, it's just a different form of it's coming out somewhere. So why not 100%? Well, on the atomic scale, thermal jiggling from the atoms, now atoms are themselves comprised of atomic nuclei which have electrons orbiting around them, sort of, sort of like planets is an easy way to visualize this. Now because the electrons are spinning around, that generates heat. That's why we can't have, get stuff to absolute zeros because you know, we have the electrons orbiting around generating a little bit of heat. So when you slide something across a table or perhaps a mouse across a mouse pad, you're generating a little bit of friction that sums from the atoms in the mouse rubbing against the atoms in the mouse pad generating heat and friction so while energy is conserved from my hand from the chemical chemical energy in my muscles to my hand to the mouse to the mouse pad the energy is conserved but it some of it a little bit of it dissipates into the mouse pad through thermal jiggling from things moving against each other and the transfer of heat even on super slick surfaces, this happens as well. If you think you can flip eggs for eternity on your little Teflon pan, you'd be mightily surprised because although the eggs will slide from one side to the other, eventually the friction will bring it to a halt. Super slick surfaces themselves are not frictionless, they're just really super slick. So there's often claims of people coming up that they have machines that have gotten over 100% efficiency 
you know, exactly 100% efficiency, but essentially the same theme abounds that you're getting more than what you pay for. Last summer, I was working at my local marina, and I was on my lunch break reading Leonard Susskind's Cosmic Landscape book, while someone curiously drawn to the cover sitting near me had inquired about my interest in physics, so we got into a little conversation, and he started asking me about uh, celestial phenomena, things like pulsars and quasars and things like that. So I obviously perked my interest and started to explain it to him, but he pulled a wild card on me, saying that pulsars were not what the scientific community says they are, but rather free-floating blobs of energy, so to speak. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, because I cannot remember verbatim what he had said. I don't really want to misrepresent him. But something along the lines that astronomical observations weren't up to par with what they really were. Not implying a conspiracy, so to speak, but implying that there was an alternate reality view of things going on here. Regardless, he had told me about a friend of his who lives on an island near here that had, while not in his spare time of smuggling cocaine across the border from Canada, had designed a machine that had run over 100% efficiency. Curious, I asked him for a source, and he referenced me to something called Joseph Newman. So, granted that we had computers inside of the dock store that I worked at during that past summer, I curiously looked it up and came across Joseph Newman's website, josephnewman.com, J-O-S-E-P-H... N-E-W-M-A-N.com. You can research it for yourself. It's rather hilarious, I find. On there, you'll find various quotes in a time cube-like fashion with centered text, bolded in red, trying to get this great idea out to you in the most annoying way possible. But with a sheer amount of coherency that's not technically found in things like time cube, for example. Now, as long as... Any point is totally in equilibrium. You would never have any resulting higher order emerge from that. So the emergence of the normal world we live in, the microscopic world, already depends upon there being hidden order in this flow. Uh, that's called the problem in quantum mechanics of the missing chaos, the missing order. Because they assumed there was no order, they made quantum change random, and that does not generate the present world we all live in. You falsify quantum mechanics by simply listening to this videotape, adjusting your tie, or opening the window. So we know that it's wrong. It's admitted to be wrong in quantum mechanics now. The problem is we have to change the statistics that we use. We have to use an already chaotic statistics. Now, fortunately, a very good physicist named David Baum showed that if you have hidden order, hidden variable theory, it's consistent with all the experiments that's out there. Nothing refutes it. It eliminates all the problems in quantum mechanics. As far as I know, uh, Baum never discovered how to actually apply hidden variables. What I have been doing is pointing out that the work that began with Stoney and Whitaker, Stoney prior to 1900, shortly before that, Whitaker 1903-1904, later used a little bit by Nisbet, uh, by Debye, and some by Dirac, for example, that work, when applied, becomes an engineerable hidden variable theory. And so you can engineer the stuff we're talking about if you look at it with the right set of theoretical eyes. It is doable in the laboratory, on the bench, with some difficulty. Now what he's talking about, albeit a bit complicated, is something that's called zero-point energy. Now what that is, is 
most definitely a fictional energy, so to speak. And what it's trying to do is it's trying to attempt to harness, essentially, dark energy. So, what's dark energy? Well, we've covered it over the past shows, but it's something that's very intangible and very abstract. As we know, the universe is expanding. Dark energy is causing this expansion. So, what's dark energy comprised of? Well, on the quantum level, we have what are called quantum fluctuations. And these are little particles that create themselves and annihilate themselves in an instant, almost. But there's still that little jump, that little bit amount of energy density, energy pressure, that creates what we know as dark energy. Now, technically, as a disclaimer, scientists don't really know what it is quite yet. It's such an emerging phenomenon, it hasn't even been around for two decades yet. This field is very new, and you know, people claiming that they can harness this energy that the leading scientists, like Stephen Hawking, or Leonard Susskind himself, or... Um, or Lawrence Krauss, saying that you can harness the energy when the experts don't know what it is implies that something else is going on here. Another fun thing that emerges out of Joseph Newman's website is what's called the tachyon theory of gravity. So this essentially, again, is another bunk theory, and I'm trying to be as unbiased as I can here, but essentially that's what it is. It's, it's, it's a bunk theory that has no valid evidence behind it. Now tachyons themselves are superluminal and violate all known laws of physics according to the standard model. So, I threw in a lot of big vocabulary there, so let me explain. Superluminal means faster than light. Super, luminal, luminous light, get it? So, superluminal means something that's traveling faster than the speed of light. Technically, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, that we know of, at least. Even so, if it did, there'd be no way of proving this, because how would you detect it if you can't bounce light waves off of something that the light waves can't catch? Knowing this, knowing that tachyons are themselves theoretical particles, and if they were to fit into the standard model, that would imply that they would have some sort of mass associated with them, unless they were weakly interacting massive particles of some sort, but even still, traveling at light speed with massive particles generates huge, huge problems, as we'll cover in a later podcast on special and general relativity. Essentially, what you have is a infinitely young particle that never ages, has unlimited mass and density, and can ultimately create its own universe, so to speak. Another thing that's fun to look up that people who have claimed to have gotten over a thousand percent efficiency, or these wacky, outlandish claims of energy and free this and free that and other things, is what's called CTP energy. You can find this on Google as well by just Googling CTP and then energy. CTP energy essentially is another pseudoscientific claim where they are perpetuating the notion of physical and non-physical realities, trying to establish that there's some sort of spiritual realm to which we can harness energy and one in which we can. Spouting claims like you can harness mental energy, things along those lines with really abstract definitions of what energy is. Now first off, let me explicitly state that energy in the scientific sense is not this free-floating ether of spiritual oneness with the universe. It's a tangible physical thing. A Energy is all around us. It's everything we see, it's everything we know, and what you're hearing right now, in fact. We know that this keyboard in front of me is energy. It's just really dense energy. 
Now, how do we know it's really dense energy? Well, if you were to take a little bit of this Dell keyboard in front of me and convert and convert it into pure energy, say through nuclear reactions, you would have something that would create a giant fireball over the Nevada desert. This is how the atomic bombs work, is by converting a small amount of mass from you know, subcritical mass uranium, slamming it together and creating a giant fireball based off of this principle of e equals mc squared, where mass is energy. Given that, given that we know that energy in the scientific sense is this thing that we know, but it's hard to describe because momentum is energy and potential energy and all these other different types of energies that are always abounding, we get lost in these colloquialisms of, you know, oh, well, energy is this abstract concept or whatever, and this pseudoscientific network sprawls and feeds off of it and expands, and we have things like spiritual astral traveling or bizarre concepts like that abounding. This is essentially what CTP energy proclaims. Now, to be fair, we tried getting the the president of CTP Energy on our podcast, but alas, he didn't re- return our emails that he had himself began. Now, a lot of these boil down into sort of scientific conspiracies, where the s- evil scientists are trying to keep free energy out of the market and trying to keep oil companies up up on par with everything else. One problem, I think, with this is that people don't give credit to science. Science right now is so far ahead of these guys creating these claims, it's unreal. Obviously, it's hard for me to communicate to, you know, y- you people who listen to this podcast. I'm sure, you know, you listen to other science podcasts as well, and I'm I'm fairly confident that other people dab into the the news items of science and how, you know, things like Bose-Einstein states are created at room temperature, these crazy things that just boggle your mind in terms of syllables or long-sounding words like quantum electrodynamics. Quantum mechanics itself is beyond comprehension from anyone without a PhD in the subject, almost. If free energy was so simple, in effect, it would be here by now. Scientists themselves are not evil people. They're not out to get you. They're not out there to perpetuate the oil companies. In fact, a lot of the scientists I know personally are for alternative energy. They're for electric cars, hybrid cars, down with big oil companies, so to speak. They're very pro-alternative energy. They're very pro-the future. The problem is, when you try to seed the future with this, with the pseudoscientific claims of virtually nothing, that these machines tend to work although you know you have to ignore the man behind the curtain sort of deal it doesn't do justice to science it doesn't do justice to them and their claims the final point is that science is a lot further down the road than we give it credit for quantum tunneling quantum computers time travel into the future black holes relativity the list goes on The strange world we live in is indeed strange, but one should be cautious into devoting time and effort into quackery. As Mach put it, it should be second nature to see that there's no free lunch in the universe. And with this, we hope that you'll join us next week, and hopefully Andrew will join us as well.